This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 20. I think I've timed this interview perfectly, being that you are an All Blacks fan and Australia has just <laughs> been in the All Blacks for the first time in God knows how long. Did they win the Bidibs Cup for you guys, did it? Was that, oh, was I it? don't know what we won. I'm not a big fan. Nah, it was a dead one. Unfortunately, didn't win it. You have to go back to 2002, I think, or 2001 for that. But you did beat us and you guys played well. Hey, commercial property community. Thank you for joining me once again today. I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and I just wanted to take this time to say thank you so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate all the text messages and emails. It really means a lot to me, and I'm really having a great time producing it for you. So just wanted to say I am very, very grateful. And in today's show... The founder of Released, Tom Wallace, stops by to share some interesting stats on rental collections during COVID-19 and how investors can use this metric to make more informed investment decisions going forward. If you'd like to have a look at this report, I'm going to make it available in the show notes and on the Commercial Property Show website. James Dawson and I have an in-depth chat about the steps you need to take to get a new tenant approved by council to operate in your space. We also cover what you should do if you suddenly find out your tenant is operating illegally and when you should notify the council of a change in use. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is the founder and CEO of Released. It's Mr. Tom Wallace. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? Excellent, buddy. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, mate, can you just give the listeners a little bit about your background and yourself? So, like myself, I founded Released back in 2012. I just finished university and was really interested in getting into technology. I just found it a really fascinating space. was really excited about the ability to sort of build something and then take it to the world, especially when you're coming from New Zealand. To sell something across the world was pretty exciting. So, we ended up working for Dad for 12 months while I was figuring out what technology. I mean, he's a commercial property developer and investor, and so... Eventually, after not too long, I started looking at what they were using for their software, and I thought that was pretty poor. I started looking around to see what else is out there, and I couldn't find anything else that I thought was really good and modern and cloud-based and everything that's good about modern software. And so I decided to go after it and, and do it ourselves. And so that's kind of 
where we started and launched the first version of released in 2013 and we sort of just kept going from there. Oh, wow, mate. So you've got a lineage there from your old man developing commercial property. Yeah, certainly on the property side. Absolutely none on the technology side from him, at least. <laughs> no worries, mate. Well, I think I've timed this interview perfectly, being that you are an All Blacks fan and Australia has just <laughs> been in the All Blacks for the first time in God knows how long over, yeah, the, yeah. over the weekend. So... Did they win the Bledisloe Cup for you guys? Did it? Was that? Oh, was I don't know what we won. I'm not a big. Uh, nah, it was. A, well, unfortunately, it didn't win the. Unfortunately, <laughs> didn't win it. You have to go back to 2002, I think, or 2001 for that. But you did beat us, um, and you guys played well. And yeah, we played poorly. So it was. I don't know. Kind of frustrating. It's quite cool to see super competitive rugby. To be honest, we drew one, we won one, and you won one. So it's quite cool. Yeah, I might not be able to say that for a while again. So I just thought I'd get it out there just during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys get plenty of wins over. I mean, you come, we'll be coming into summer soon, you guys will come and clean us up in cricket again. So I don't think you guys have it too bad. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, mate, I'm interested to know what is released and how can it be leveraged to help commercial managers and investors? Yeah, certainly. So, released is cloud based commercial property management software. So, we're basically the technological backbone that runs commercial property portfolios. So, like I said, we're used by landlords or property managers. So, sort of two different customer bases. And we'll do everything from the accounting, the reporting, the arrears, the tenant management, document storage, legal, everything that goes on with running a portfolio and commercial. And obviously, it's a when you're running commercial property, our clients will have anywhere from, say, at the low end, 10 or 20 properties, at the high end, up to 5,000. And there's a huge amount that goes on with that. You know, there's an awful lot that goes on in terms of compliance and key events. And so we automate that, all of that. And that's our goal is to automate as many manual processes as we possibly can and work really, really hard on the user experience. So when a customer comes on board, we want them to feel very comfortable with the software. We want it to seem logical, which all makes sense, right? But it's something that has been, in my opinion, kind of lacking from software products previously in this space. They've been very hard to use, very manual, and you end up spending kind of huge amounts of time and a huge amount of people to sit in front of computers and quit buttons all day. And we just don't think that's a good use of time. Um, and so we want to automate that and, and give people that time back to go work on high value activities yeah definitely so is this about like automating the terms of the lease where there are going to be increases per year and it flags you to actually do that yeah well it effectively does that for you even so that's absolutely one part of it right and we one of the big surprises we see when we bring customers on board when we bring their data across for them so that's a pretty big job and the amount of times that we see people that have missed rent reviews going back a number of years they've missed fixed rent reviews and by the stage we get to them, it's costing them tens of thousands of dollars in this rent. We've had it into hundreds of thousands a few times already. We can sort of show that and say, hey, look, did you know you haven't done these reviews? And it's costing a lot of money. And they're always really surprised. And that's generally what happens if you're running on a software system where it doesn't automatically do that for you, or at least automatically present that information to you in a really easy way. Or, of course, if people are using spreadsheets, which still a lot of landlords still run massive portfolios um, on spreadsheets. In fact, we've brought customers across who have over a billion dollars worth of property running on spreadsheets. Wow. Um, and, and as you can imagine, it's, it's a bit tricky to stay across all the sort of key dates and everything when you're, when you're running big spreadsheets like that. Oh, definitely, mate. And everyone who's listening to this podcast probably knows that the value of the property is derived from the income from the property. So if you're missing your rental increases and you're losing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars, that can stack up to big dollars. So Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, surprisingly common. So, mate, what statistics can you share from your management system? I'd, I'd imagine that you have a lot of customers that you could kind of draw from. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you statistics on us first, and then we pulled out some interesting stats for Australia in particular. So in terms of ourselves, we have just come out to 1,000 customers, should be there next month. We have 100 staff, and we process over $7 billion in rent every year. And I think it's sort of around 150,000 leases or so in the system. So we've got a really wide data set. And we were just looking at what's some interesting stats we've seen, particularly with COVID. And in Australia, some of the stats we pulled out today, which I thought would share is um, that we're seeing the whale for Australia has declined, as you'd probably expect. So from January through to November this year, for all asset classes, we've seen a 3% drop in the whale. And the national average across those property classes is at 27.7 months. That's the same in retail, which um, has dropped 3%. And that average is 31.7. But what's interesting about that, for us anyway, is that compared to the UK and New Zealand, Australian retail has the lowest whale, and it also has a really high exposure, and the highest exposure actually, to what we term rolling leases. And a rolling lease is, when it comes to the end of a tenancy term, you put roll that across on a monthly basis. And on that, we've actually seen a really big shift due to COVID this year of leases that have moved on to a rolling month-to-month lease. And so we've seen that. That's now at an Aussie retail, that's 7.6%, and that's up from 3.3%. So that's not far off double in that time. So really interesting. And obviously, if you've got a, a large number of your portfolio on rolling leases, you don't have a lot of certainty of tenure there and they can leave. So just some interesting stats I thought we could pull out and share there. Yeah, definitely. And I guess uh, refinancing your property on a rolling lease is not going to be easy. No. Just for the listeners, can you just explain what the whale is? Where did average lease expiry? So it's got different terms in different countries. It's called WALT in the UK. Uh, basically, it's when you look at a building and you average out the lease lengths of all the different tenancies. So you might have, if you think of a really tall building, you might have some leases on with 10 years remaining, some leases looking with uh, six months remaining, and it effectively it calculates the average of those. So you can get one number that gives you an overall average of that property. So you can get a very quick look at how long the rent has remaining on those leases in a building. There's a few different calculations. People do it a little bit differently in certain areas, but that's sort of the general understanding. Yeah, and usually a bank will like a higher whale than a lower yep, whale. Yeah, exactly, right? So the higher whale you have, well, the longer your income is going to be guaranteed for. And if you were buying a property with a very short whale, that means you're going to have to find a lot of tenants pretty soon. You're going to expose you to risk if you're looking to re-sign those leases. You might not be able to fill the space. So that's why a longer whale is generally more favoured, especially by banks, because they're looking for low risk. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, how should investors use the rental collection report to their advantage when they're making their next purchase? So, I mean, what we've found, the rental collection report is something that, like, we relaunched a new product this year called Credia. We sit across a huge amount of data, and we've been really excited for a long time to be able to use that data, anonymize and aggregate the data, and then share that back to our customers so they can start to make better decisions rather than just relying on gut feel, which is, you know, to be honest, has been the way of the industry for a very long time. And so, and when COVID hit, we realized we're nearly about to launch a new product, but we realized that we were getting inundated with all of our customers saying, you know, they were all getting the same requests from their tenants. You know, we can't pay rent, we're getting hammered here, and no one really knew what to do, right? Because there was no playbook and no one had experienced it before. But what we knew is that we had a whole bunch of customers, hundreds of customers going through the same thing. And so we were able to release the rent impact reports very quickly to the market, and that just showed how everyone else was responding and the sort of discounts or, or drops in rent collections that they were seeing and the credits that were being applied. And so by releasing that free to the market, we saw it got a lot of media coverage to start with, but it really gave a starting point for our landlords when they were negotiating with tenants to say, hey, look, this is what's happening in the market. So when a tenant was coming saying, hey, we're going to pay no money at all, they were saying, well, look, we can see 
in retail in these areas, this is a standard, and it was just a good starting point for that negotiation. But now it's turning into a good tool to understand the recovery of certain sectors in the market as well. So it's one in Australia where we know of a, a customer who was looking at the collection reports and actually noticed that retail collection was doing better than, than they expected and better than most people expected. They're actually collecting the rent pretty well. And so that gave them a lot more confidence in that sector and in the ability to collect rent in that sector. And so they gave them the confidence to make a purchase via retail asset, which if you're buying when other people aren't looking at that data and other people are nervous, you can get good deals, right? So they picked that property off someone else who was nervous and wanted to exit the sector. Obviously, I mean, they got a, a good buy and I guess time will tell if it was the right decision, but they bought it for what they considered a, a really good price and using that data gave them at least some of the confidence to do so. So that's a good example. And further, like if you think outside of retail, if you're looking at like office, for example, is a very good example there. You've seen those collection rates rise back. Everyone's wondering what's office going to look like when a lot of people got used to working from home. <laughs> so it's going to be, you can use that collection to see how strong is that sector and that might time your decisions around getting in and investing or perhaps leaving that sector and looking for something else like perhaps industrial might be safer. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of like using that kind of metric for that, but that's really interesting. Mm, yeah, no, we're actually going deeper though. Like for us, we're just at the very start. We think that the industry has been crying out for more of a data-driven approach for a long time, but most main problem is like the data hasn't been there. And also there's, it's been a very stable sort of asset class for a long time where you just own an asset and you sit on that and you fill it with a tenant. But there's been a lot of change. Like there was a lot of change coming anyway with the pressure on retail, things like WeWork and flexible spacing, putting a lot of uh, office space, putting a lot of pressure in, and then everything's just accelerated by COVID. Right? So we're seeing that now there's, it's just a lot faster moving industry. So if you can be the one there that's looking at the data to see what's happening on the ground and really understand it, you can move quicker um, in our opinion anyway. So we think it's a really good opportunity Like we want to provide back how long leases are being signed for? You know, are we seeing retail leases being signed for a much shorter period, or are we seeing a huge drop off in retail leases being signed? All that sort of information, and obviously in certain areas, helps an investor build a picture and helps them make a better decision. But of course, it's just giving them the information. They have to, of course, apply their own knowledge and understanding of the market to make good decisions. But it, it does give them an advantage over the competition. That's for sure. Yeah, so it's kind of like an average. It gives you the average of what's happening, and you can make your own decision from there. Yeah, it just gives you more information than others will have, basically. Yeah, perfect, mate. So how is Release different from all the other management tools out there? So most of our competitors that we go against, they're very traditional or older pieces of software, basically. So you kind of split it into two camps. There's the residential software. And even though residential and commercial, you'd think it's relatively similar in terms of the software requirements, it's really different. It's totally different. So we specialize in commercial first. That's you know, We have a lot of residential property on there as well, but we specialize in commercial, and that's a major point of difference because we go really deep into that space. Then the next step is that we're really modern cloud-based software. So we started building in 2012 and launched 2013 on completely modern architecture. Being cloud-based means obviously you can access it anywhere. We've got really great access to the data, which I've mentioned before. We've got mobile apps. And also we focus a lot on connecting into other best-in-class products. For example, Xero, the accounting software, we have a, a really deep integration with them. And by having two products working together really well, it just creates this whole new experience. All the data is transferring, and it just means there's less errors and, and more efficiencies. And so, like I mentioned at the start, we focus on usability, um, trying to automate everything we can and make it as usable as possible. So you know, we see efficiency gains of you know, 75% drop in admin. 
And effectively, that just allows a company to transition the staff into higher value areas and generally either save money or make more money or a deadly combination of the two. So does the software lend itself to be able to be across all the different sectors? I know in tourism, they usually have some kind of tourism-specific software. Would it be able to handle, like, say, a manufactured home estate or a caravan park or a tourist park, things like that? Yeah, we have a very wide range. As you can imagine, we sell into like 40 countries. We have a very wide range of uses. We definitely specialize in commercial, but we, you know, we see a really wide range as well. I think there is a caravan park. But what we really specialize is those longer-term commercial-style leases. So if it was something that was like really short-term, like Airbnb or flexible space, those sorts of things, where it's more like a booking system, more like a hotel, that's not what we do. But in terms of the commercial side, you know, we, particularly in places like the UK, we, we bring on big commercial assets. It might be an estate, which would have effectively a whole town in it, right, which would range from <laughs> offices in the centre, pubs, and then a castle, and then like fishing lodges and all sorts of things. So it is, um, it's pretty broad. So would you possibly use this, like say you're a, an investor, you're an individual investor, and you have a really large portfolio. Would you possibly use this as a standalone system to basically manage your managing agent so you can keep an eye on what they're doing and if they're doing a good job? You would use Credia for that, which is the sort of data overlay. Um, okay. That's the data visualization product that we have. So effectively, that allows you to see really great visualized data and graphs, which will give you a very good understanding of how it's being performed. If you had the software and you were a landlord, you'd basically be running that portfolio yourself or with a team. There is, we do have customers, though, where the managing agents use and then give access to those clients as well. So they kind of have shared access to the system, but not typically as a way of oversight because it's just going to end up with you're kind of doing work to keep it up to date and they're doing work. There's just too much double handling in that to be efficient. Okay, fair enough. So, mate, does commercial property in New Zealand act in the same way as it does in Australia? Yeah, New Zealand and Australia are really similar, right? And we, we've been selling in Australia almost before we were selling in New Zealand, actually, which is quite interesting, and it's, and it's a lot bigger for us there, obviously just due to the size of the country. So they're really similar markets and behave in the same way, and, and it's had a fairly similar impact through COVID as well, although New Zealand was a little deeper shock due to the harsh lockdown, but recovered quicker, but really similar. We see a lot more difference in the UK, US. The UK in particular, like a good example is lease terms over there are, are generally far longer. You know, like it's signing a 10 or 20-year office lease was up until recently pretty standard. But we're seeing big changes in that as well, actually. There's a lot of pressure on, on lease things there with you know, retails dropping away. We work and, and different flexible office providers are coming in and putting real pressure on. So they're actually getting shorter and getting closer to New Zealand and Australia. But yeah, it's really fascinating. What we like to do is we try and take our learnings from all the different markets we operate in and bring the very best bits back into our product so everyone gets the benefit of that. Yeah, that's great, mate. So how is uh, New Zealand affected by COVID? I know you just mentioned it there, but can you just go a little bit deeper into how New Zealand handled and the commercial market in general was affected by COVID-19? I'm sure you would have seen on the news, the whole country went into very strict lockdown for six weeks and it happened very quickly, right? Basically shut yeah. the country down. You weren't really allowed to leave home. So <laughs> we saw a massive drop off in rent collections in that point. Basically everything dropped to 50% as the economy effectively shut down. It worked. I think it worked kind of better than everyone had hoped for in terms of like the virus, COVID was out of the country. We didn't have it anymore. It wasn't in the community. So once it opened back up, we saw everything return back to normal, except for areas like Queenstown, which were really heavily reliant on international tourists. We have seen that pick up a lot more as New Zealand tourists move around the country a lot more. I think there's about $10 billion of spend annually that 
usually Kiwis spend overseas on their holidays. And that's not going anywhere now. So they're spending it locally, which is helping the recovery. And some sectors are actually doing better than they ever have in some places. We're also seeing a lot of Kiwis moving back from the UK and different places. You know, so it's people that were considering moving back at some point are just moving back now. I think there's 50,000 already back and there's more, I think there's 10 times that projected, which seems like a crazy high number. That might all reverse, of course, if the, the vaccine that they were talking about the other day actually comes through quite quickly. And luckily that recovery has kind of stayed. There was a, a small outbreak which affected Auckland for a few weeks, which was a bit of a worry because you would have seen retailers going in and out, which is not good for anyone. But luckily they got on top of that pretty quick and it's been very stable. The data wasn't too affected by that in terms of rent collection. Yeah, that's great. New Zealand kind of was the gold standard for how to handle it for a little while there. I mean, you guys really went into lockdown very quickly and that was great. Yeah, they were aggressive. Yeah, it was, it was, it was certainly kind of took me by surprise how aggressive it was. We used the advantages of being small and isolated there, but at the same time it was, I'd have to say it was a bit of a masterclass in communication and leadership to get everyone on board quickly and really stick to the plan and it worked well. Um, and saying that as well, I think Australia has done a phenomenal job as well, keeping on top of things. And I mean, Victoria, our office over there is in Melbourne, got a big um, The team had, did it really tough for a long time, but it looks like things are getting back on track, which is pleasing because it wasn't, you know, no, it absolutely wasn't easy for them. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, my last question, are the returns on investment on commercial property in New Zealand, are they similar to Australia or is there a great difference there? So, it's getting closer. I think everywhere we go, yields have been driving down. So, when I first got into commercial property, we were seeing yields at around, like, a good property it was like 6 or 7%. That was good. And now, it's down at like 3 or 4%. Generally, it's slightly lower than New Zealand to 1% or 2% lower. And then UK, same again. Like UK, people buying them like just super low yields. So they're getting closer. And obviously, just like an abundance of capital and you know, interest rates are really low. So that trend's continued. I'm always surprised about how low they go. But then I go and look at the UK where they're even lower and it kind of makes me realise that there's actually still further to go. Yeah, well, it does kind of make a difference to where you are in Australia and what sector you're in. So if you're in Queensland, you could probably still find a good industrial investment for around six, six and a half. But when you get to right. those closer to the capital cities, in like Sydney, a 4% cap rate on, on a good industrial, I mean, that's probably around where it's at. Yeah, actually, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, same thing here, really. Like, so my experience has always been sort of regional. It was where dad's operated in, in the regions, but we spent a lot of time in Auckland. I'm based in Auckland now, which is a, you know, it's nearly 2 million people here. It's a big city. So yeah, it completely mirrors what you'd see in, in Sydney, where you've got much tighter cap rates up here. Yeah, definitely. All right, mate, we'll wrap it up there. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your services? So you find us on released.com, and released is spelled R-E-L-E-A-S-E-D.com. Perfect, mate. My guest today has been Tom Wallace from Release. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Andrew. Thanks, mate. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cashflow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. 
James Dawson's commercial property cash flow blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Returning to the show today is the creator of the number one commercial property course. It's Mr. James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Great to have a chat again. Today, we are going to be chatting about one of the things that can make or break an investment property, and that's the tenant. So today's chat is going to revolve around checking the tenant approvals and lodging new applications. So James, how do you actually check if the current tenant has been approved by the council? Yeah, look, definitely a very important thing. And I'll just start by way of an example with that one, Andrew, because we were looking at a property in Tasmania. This is going back about three years ago and had a cafe tenant in a commercial strip. It was on the end of a strip in a heritage building. and very early into the due diligence, the, the real estate agent called us and said, look, I've actually found out that the cafe is not allowed to be there. It's not meant to be a food operation. So they'd been operating sort of illegally for three years. They just got in there and, and started operating as a cafe. So that sale didn't proceed. Very, very important. I mean, mostly, I guess, people just assume that if there's a cafe in a premises that it is approved or if there's a hair salon in there. So you need to check that. And the first question would be to ask the tenant, either directly or through the agent, you know, ask the tenant, say, look, you know, do you have current approvals or did you get an approval when you, you know, did the fit out and moved into this shop? And would you ask to get a copy of that approval? Yeah, absolutely. And look, if they're not forthcoming, I mean, you would just ask your lawyer to ask their lawyer. It's more important really for things like food operations and stuff like that. More If it's just a plain retail shop, change of one type of retail to another retail is actually not a change of use. It's just a change of tenant. So the council's more concerned about change of use. And then obviously, if there's any health, food and health safety issues that come into play, like obviously would with the restaurant cafe, they're very, very important because as most people realise, you know, have got special flooring, special walls, special ceilings even. So if those things aren't in place, you know, you wouldn't want to have some disaster, you know, six months into buying the property. Yeah, I imagine that might trigger your different insurances that you might need to get as well. That's right. And actually, good point, because super important with uh, any food business, if they've got deep fryers, that can ring alarm bells if they haven't got the correct insurance or, you know, you as the landlord have the correct insurance for that property allowing for a deep fryer. And actually, there's different sizes for that. Sometimes they can get away with a small one, not have to increase the insurance premium. But the tenant most likely is going to pay that premium. But, you know, obviously you want to be fully covered. Would you ever actually just ring the council directly and ask, are they forthcoming with that kind of information? Yeah. Look, I generally don't. I would probably go through the channel of if you are able to chat with the tenant, which I like to do, ask the tenant first, then maybe the agent and then your lawyer. So if you got to the point the agent said, look, there's no approval, that's probably going to be quite an issue, you know, and, and you would probably think twice about looking further at that property unless you just said, look, I'm buying this subject to approval. 
Okay, it's a good idea. So do the permits usually have an expiry date or are they ongoing? Often, you know, with the food stuff, they will come and have other inspections. So it might be a 12-monthly inspection. So they're generally something that you would want to see that they're all up to date with those. But if it's a hair salon or just a retail shop, for example, or another sort of use, it might be, you know, like a car parts shop or whatever, they probably never, ever have another inspection or any need to have a new approval. It's just sort of been in place for years and that's the way it stays. Okay, because I actually had a a look at a caravan park last week and they had an approval for a five-year window. And I was just wondering if that is the norm or is it just usually an ongoing thing for different premises? That's interesting you say that. I haven't heard about that having a a sort of time limit on their, you know, current approval. So I think, you know, it does vary a lot and it really depends on the type of tenant. You know, like more sort of passive tenants, you know, like say a dress shop or something like that, it's basically a retail store and any other sort of retail operation like a bookshop, for example, could just go in and it wouldn't be a change of use. It's just actually a change of tenant. But something, a specific use like a caravan park, definitely that's something that, you know, would require a check. Now, one point, Andrew, here is that you know, your lawyer is probably going to pick this up in the due diligence. So if you haven't sort of found out about it initially, your lawyer is actually going to find out about this for you in any case. Okay, that's good to know. We touched on it as before, but when you are changing tenants, you don't need to make the council aware at all if it's the same use. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So there is actually something in the planning that sort of says that, you know, if you change from one type of retail shop to another type of retail, it's not a change of use. It's just considered a change of tenant. So they're more concerned with the change of use. So if you went from, say, a dress shop to a beauty salon, and particularly one that was doing particular beauty treatments, for example, that needed plumbing and all sorts of stuff and more sanitary upgrades of sanitary fittings and all that, well, definitely you would need some sort of application. But, you know, the local councils are pretty helpful. But I know when we had a hair salon go into one of our shops, they just said, look, you just need to put in a plan. That's all you need to do. And we'll sign off on that and go from there. So they just did their normal plumbing application as you would if you were just renovating a bathroom. That actually goes into my next question, where is how much of a change of use is allowed? Say the old tenant is operating as a cafe and the new tenant wants to offer it as a cafe with a bookshop. Do you need to make the council aware of that? Look, I would say in that particular example, you wouldn't, because if they've got approval as a cafe, then obviously hopefully got all the food approvals, health and safety stuff in place. And adding a bookshop to that, I would say, is just an ancillary use and, and wouldn't need any extra approval. I mean, no harm to ask, but I mean, I guess some landlords probably like myself in that situation would be feeling like, oh, I'm going to open a can of worms here. So I might ask my private town planner rather than go to council. And that's often a good way to go, you know, is maybe not alert council straight away. I mean, even though you will get an answer from them, but if you've got a friendly private town planner, they might be able to just give you the answer very quickly over the phone just to put your mind at ease. Yeah, that's a good tip. So, mate, should you engage a town planner to lodge a new tenant application? Yes, I think depending what it is, for example, we lease a 450 square metre space to uh, Plus Fitness, a big gymnasium franchise. and That definitely needed a full change of use application and we engaged a you know local town planner to do that the council already spoke to them and they sort of said no look this is going to be fine but you do need to lodge an application 
which basically set out things like where's the car parking, what hours of operation are they going to be operating. This was a 24-hour gym. How many lights are going to be on? You know, there was lots of detail in it, but it was all fairly easy to, to handle. And one of them was actually noise. You know, is there going to be a lot of noise coming from the gym? So all sort of common sense points were covered in the application, but it was approved very quickly. And I think if I tried to do it on my own, it probably cost me $1,500, I think, to lodge the application. And in that case, it was part of the negotiation that I paid for the application. And it was well worth it because a private town planner knows exactly how to do it. And they generally know the people in council, so they can pick up the phone and chat to them about any small issue. Yeah, it's always good to have the local town planner in that LGA to talk to their council. Yeah. You just mentioned it as well. What costs are involved in lodging application? You said that was $1,500. Is that a standard kind of fee? That would probably be around average, I would say. I mean, it just depends on the complexity of it. And as I mentioned before, it can be sort of part of the negotiation with the tenant that, uh, you know, with a new tenant where we were pretty keen to get this gym in to take five shops in a row. We were sort of bending over backwards to help them get in. We could control the situation a bit better if we offered to pay for the town planner, engage the town planner ourselves. So that's often something as a landlord, you know, you need to consider because if you're just saying to the tenant, for example, oh, look, you put the application in and we'll pay for it, you've sort of lost control of it a little bit and, you, you know, you don't really know what they're doing and when they're doing it and, and are they doing the proper job. And have they got the right planner, you know? So that's very important, I think, you know, is to sort of maintain a little bit of control. Yeah, I think that's important as well. So, mate, if you've got a vacant space, should you find a tenant first and then lodge an application? Or should you lodge an application for a new tenant and get an approval and then find a tenant? We've done that with cafes where we thought, well, look, this is an ideal cafe or one of the ones, actually one in Newcastle, we had was an existing cafe but when we renovated the building we thought look you could do a much better layout than was there initially so we did the whole we actually lodged an application for a new fit out exhaust hoods all that type of stuff the cool room and also for usage as a cafe and also applied for the outside dining license and that way we could target a particular tenant and it was really easy for them to go in you know because they're already approved and we had that leased very, very quickly. Now, it doesn't mean you have to use it as a cafe. That could have been changed around again, maybe for a slightly different use, more of a wine bar restaurant, but they would have had to perhaps uh, make a new application for that. But at least everything was there in the, the bare bones of it all. Yeah, I guess if you already have an idea and you can see that location and you've got a lot of experience mm-hmm. under your belt, so you can probably just tell that this is going to be a great cafe location, then you can take that chance, can't you? But I guess if you're changing it to a a stranger kind of use that's not as common, that might be where you'd stay, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, often tenants will approach you and, and say, oh, look, I want to X, Y, Z. I mean, one of my friends had a building and someone approached him to put a, a brothel in there. And it actually was a perfect property for that. But there's very specific rules around that sort of usage. And I'm not sure where that went ahead, but you can do anything. It's just a matter of asking the planners to make some inquiries. You can go direct with council. You can book a meeting with the planning section of council if you like to have a bit of a chat. But my view is with that, that sometimes they start talking about stuff that really is a bit over my head in planning terms. And you sort of think, wow, I really should have had a planner with me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 All right, mate. So how long should the application process take until approved? 
you really probably would want to allow, if it's a more complex application, probably up to three months. So it can take quite a bit of time. And that gymnasium one did take a bit of time because we had to get some other consultants in to do things like sound checks and all that on the property. So those things can hold it up. So the sooner you get started, obviously, the better. But I would say a simple one, like maybe a change of use, say, from a retail dress shop to a hair salon, probably shouldn't take more than about four weeks. Okay, well, that's good to know. What are some of the things you've learned over the years of dealing with council that you can share with the listeners? Many, many things I've learned from various <laughs> councils. It's funny how good some of them are and how hard some of them are to get on with. But I must admit, there's been a bit of a, a change. Like Byron Council, for example, in Byron Bay was always very, you know, I, I would say, very difficult. If you went to the counter to ask them about lodging an application for something, often they just would give you hardly any information or be sort of negative about it from the get-go. So it was always very difficult. And that actually was what pushed me towards prior private town planners years ago. But conversely, I deal with Waverley Council in Sydney, which is the Bondi sort of council, and Moreton Bay Council. They're great. They've been great to deal with, even things we actually approached them to trim some trees on the footpath in front of our shopping centre. And when we called them, they said, well, don't you worry about it. We'll come down and do it for you. You know, yeah, I think there's a bit more, let's say, customer service education that's been applied to a lot of councils. I know that with Byron Council now, when I'm ringing up the lady about sewage systems, I talk to Emma, the same girl all the time, you know, so it's just a little bit more personal. And I think they've had to do that, but probably also it's been made easier because everything's online, you know, obviously with email and all that the last sort of five, 10 years, it's made a lot easier for councils to keep on top of things as well. Yeah, it definitely makes it easier when they're easier to contact online and it's the same person you're speaking with. And then also they have the systems in place to actually take care of the inquiries as well. Yeah, and often I've found actually we've had some things with sort of fire ratings and compliance and stuff in older buildings and often the council employees who are in that department will point you in the right direction. You know, they'll say, look, if you call this guy, you might get an answer on what you should use to solve that problem, that sort of thing. So it's super helpful. But in saying that, one other tip I've learned just by accident is my architect that I use quite a bit in Sydney, he gets on very, very well with council and with Waverley Council, you know, he knows people there and he's always done the right thing. So that's a big thing. So, I mean, I think if you're engaging an architect or even a, a private town planner, it's probably a fair question to ask them, oh, how well do you get on with the local council? If they say that they have a terrible time every time, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess you could ask how many DAs have you had approved by that council as well. It'd give you a fair idea. Yeah, that's right. And actually, my architect has never had a DA knocked back by that council. So that was a good start. Yeah, definitely. What should you do if you find out a tenant is operating illegally or when you're doing your due diligence? What should you do? I think if you're still keen on the property and the basis of the deal is still looking like something you'd want to pursue, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be notifying the council. I'd be probably saying via the agent initially to say, look, you know, I'm keen on this property, but it's going to have to be subject to the tenant getting the proper approvals in place. So that could be a good thing because you might then find that it takes them three or four months to get those approvals in place. But effectively, if you've got that in the contract, you've got control of that property during that time. So you might find that a tenant doesn't even know that they're operating mm. 
Mm-hmm. It might be through no fault of their own or some rules have changed and or they've just someone's done something in the property, you know, five years ago that they just didn't think they needed approval for and it's just rears its head now. So giving them the opportunity to rectify it I think is a great thing to do. Yeah, that's a good tip. So, mate, is there anything else that you want to say about tenant approvals or anything like that? I think as a landlord, whether you're dealing with a new potential property purchase with a tenant or dealing with an existing property they have with a tenant, you should really be trying to do everything possible to make sure that that tenant does have all the approvals in place and also help them sort it out if they haven't. Because you've got to remember, a lot of people haven't had experience with this sort of stuff and they wouldn't know the first step in getting approval or they're so frightened about it, they really need some guidance. So I would um, certainly be trying to help them. I mean, if their business goes well, it helps you. So there's nothing wrong with spending a bit of time, perhaps a few dollars to, to help them out. Yeah, I love that. All right, James. Well, if listeners would like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. And where else can they contact you, James? Best to go to the website, www.jamesdawsonproperty.com.au. Fantastic, mate. Today's guest has been James Dawson. Cheers, buddy. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. Chat soon. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper resource is Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell. Now, if you never heard of Sam Zell, he is regarded to be one of the best property investors or if not the best property investor of all time. And he founded his company in the late 60s called Equity Investment Groups. It's a private investment firm that put together massive portfolios and then they take that public on the American Stock Exchange. And he's just made some huge deals. Some of the biggest deals in history were done by this man and his firm. They have a fund called Equity Lifestyle Properties and they are to this day the largest holder of manufactured home estates in America. The book is all about his life and the way that he puts together these massive deals and the interesting way that he looks at risk. If you're interested in being really successful in the commercial property space, then this is a really, really great book for you to read. And it's this week's Ripper Resource, Am I Being Too Subtle by Samuel Zell. That concludes another show. Thank you so much for listening. I want to say thank you to my guests, Tom Wallace from Released and James Dawson. 
Don't forget to check out the rental collection report in the show notes or you can find the link on the Commercial Property Show website. Special mention to Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, pay the price today so you can pay any price tomorrow. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This is has been a Developer Life production.